These who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are glad to be here and to hear your word. We are glad to sing your praises. We are glad that you sent your son to reconcile us to you. And we pray that as we hear your word, we would see that you are a God who deals in joy. The scriptures call you the blessed God. When we consider the word blessed, Lord, in your word as you have written it, it means happy, which means that you are delighted. You experience continual joy in all things. And we are thankful that the scriptures teach that one day you will present us blameless in the presence of your son and yourself. And it will be for us with great joy. Christmas is a time when we consider joy. And yet it is a time that is full of stress and difficulty for many. It's a time of emptiness and loneliness and so we pray that as we work with people and we wish them a Merry Christmas, as we share and spend time and go to holiday parties and whatnot, as we interact with the rest of humanity, we pray that we would be those who share not just the truth that we know, but that we also share the grace that we've experienced and share how it leads to joy. We pray this. We pray that you would show us this from the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, having grown up in a, in a Christian home uh, and having grown up uh, with parents who uh, came to Christianity as adults, it was um, it was it was natural that that their understanding of of faith and of doing good would would rub off on me. Um, it was it was not always clear to me that Christianity, as contained in the scriptures. Uh, does not have much to do with what we do. What I gathered growing up was that the gospel message was God would forgive my sins, but I had better be good, right? 
That, that, that the good news was that God would clear my record and now I ought to behave myself, right? That the gospel message was that, that you have a foundation on which you can now build, you can work on being sweet as grandma wanted me to be, right? You know, that, that we could go and do good. Uh, the problem that I encountered was that I discovered that doing good and being good was difficult. That it was not easy. Uh, having gone away to college, um, I, I took some philosophy classes, and I, and I learned um, from uh, some of these classes that the, that the pinnacle of self-sacrifice and doing good is for there to be absolutely no benefit to myself, right? That that I that I do good purely from a sense of obligation. That I do good because doing good is is right and that there be nothing in it for me you know and that I just that I just do good um, and that's what I learned and inwardly I rejected that inwardly I thought life is about being happy and that set up a conflict that lasted for a number of years uh, in God's grace uh, I, I sat at the picnic table in my backyard with an older pastor by the name of, of Bob Fox. And um, Pastor Fox, like that's a cool pastor name, right? <laughs> you know, some guys, I met a Pastor Steele once, like that is a cool name too. Um, but uh, uh, Pastor Fox, as we were talking, he said to me, he said, I think you've gotten your philosophy and your Christianity, you know, mixed up. You know, like that, that, that old commercial, right? Like, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter, right? And what results from that is fantastic, right? Like, Reese's Pieces are Reese's peanut butter cups. Like, those are the thing. Like, getting your, your, your obligation theology and your Christianity mixed up, not so good, right? That's like, that's like getting a thermos that keeps hot things hot cold things cold and putting chili and lemonade in there at the same time right yeah exactly right well this is what i learned uh pastor fox he he gave me a, a stack of books but one of the books that was in there was a book by a man named francis schaefer uh, called escape from reason unless you're dealing with the exact same thing i was dealing with i don't recommend going and buying this you'll be like why it's like 87 pages it's thick and there's this stair step diagram in it of how philosophy the further we move from god takes us to this place called despair and for me it was like this is the answer this is what i've been looking for what i learned was that i got my my philosophers mixed up with my christianity that, that what I thought was Christianity was just, you know, this German guy, Immanuel Kant, saying, you know, you must do what is right all the time, and, you know, there's nothing in it for you. I was blessed to start running across some Christian teachers who said that the work of the Christian life is to live in a way that, that responds to God's grace and God's goodness and results in good in the world and your joy. That joy is consistent with Christianity. What a revelation. Many people in this world are pursuing happiness. They want to feel this deep. And I know that as a preacher, I'm supposed to say like, am I losing my microphone here? That I'm supposed to say that happiness depends on what's happening around us, our circumstances and 
I, I don't have another battery with me. So if it just went out, I'm just going to take it off. Um, don't worry about it. Oh, am I on? Hello? No. All right. I'm just going to shout. I'll talk loud. Um, I can do that. Um, I'm supposed to say that happiness depends on happening, but joy abides. But listen, in our sense of what it is that, that makes life fulfilling, we want to feel delight. We want to feel that consistent sense that, that things are going well and that our life is headed in the right direction. I think that's what most people think when they, when they talk about happiness or joy. And this is the good news of the gospel, that the work of God in the world, in sending Christ into the world, Now I get to figure out how to put the batteries in. The work of God in the world, God is working for His glory and for our joy. There's a passage in the Scriptures where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and he's, he's talking about his relationship to them and he's saying to them basically, like, I could boss you around as an apostle. That's, that's my, my job, right? I could tell you what you have to do in order to live right, but he says this, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. That's what he says. That is amazing. Are you coming after me? Yeah, I was going to do it. I'm good. I'm good. What? I'm good. This is, this is real life. I'm, I'm completely and utterly happy right now. Oh, there we go. All right, very good. Thank you. I'll do this instead of trying to tell jokes in, in the future. Yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll experience technical difficulties and solve them. Look at, let's look at the life of, of uh, the brother of Jesus who came from a place where he was distant from the work of God in his life, and he landed in a place where his experience was that of joy and expectation of greater joy. Here's what Jude writes. This is what I, I call in the book of Jude. This is like the foundation of joy for him. He writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And he writes, this is, this is the, the, the magic or the, the power or the blessing is contained in his address, in my opinion. This is what he says. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What a great word, right? You know, if something has to be multiplied to me, I want it to be mercy, peace, and love. Jude is he's not been sitting around waiting to write a Bible book all of his life, like being a good boy and, 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 and like being qualified. Judah's not like the, a, a great character prior to his appearance here in the scriptures. In John chapter uh, 7, I believe it is, verse 2, it says that, the, that there was a Jewish feast called Tabernacles that was at hand. And so Jesus' brothers say to him, leave here, leave home and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, this is Jesus' brothers are 
egging him on to go and declare who he is to, to the Jewish people. He'd been in a season of controversy, and they're like, you're the Messiah. Go and reveal yourself to the world. Take your, your crown and your, your throne. Go for it, Jesus. Right? They're essentially telling him, go and reveal yourself as Messiah. Because they know what will happen at this point if, if, if he does that. He will be taken. He will be punished. He will be crucified. You know what the very next thing it says in verse 5? For not even his brothers believed in him. Right? They had to grow up alongside a perfect human. And they're like, you're the worst. We can't stand you. They don't believe in him. They want him to go away. Jude was a scoffer. He did not believe. At one point, Mary leads the brothers to go and to get Jesus and to bring him home because they think he's crazy. This is when Jesus says, who, are, who is my mother and who are my brothers? The ones who do the will of God. He's basically saying, you know, they're, they've got no part in me. They don't, they don't believe in me. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, when he came back and his disciples began to preach him, Jude found joy in Jesus. He did. He believed the gospel and he entered the church to the point where he writes this letter to the church and it becomes part of the New Testament. He found joy. He found delight, not in opposing God, not in mocking him, not writing his own story, but instead he found joy in serving the God who created him. He found joy in doing good. He found joy in pursuing the path that God laid out for him. I think the, the fundamental problem that, that we find so often is when there's obligation in our life, when, when we hear the rules or we hear that we ought to do something, it opposes our inner freeness that we want to feel. We don't want to be chained. We want to do everything out of, out of freedom. We don't want to do stuff because we've got to, you know? At least maybe this is me. Maybe you're one of those people who's got to, and you're like, it's all got to be right. And you want the chairs to all be lined up. You want every pencil sharp. You want every piece of paper in its place. You know, I don't, I want that kind of, but I don't know how to get there. Uh, that's, my, that's my struggle. We want to be free, but we don't really know what freedom is. Think about it. If I were a flag, right, and I'm like, I'm on the end of a flagpole, and I'm like, I want to be free. I want to fly in the sky. You know, like, disconnect me from these ropes and this oppressive pole. What's going to happen? Am I going to, like, sail through the air and, like, travel the world? And be like, oh, it's Egypt, the pyramids. I always wanted to see them. No, what happens is you fall to the ground, right? And you lay there. If I'm a train and I'm like, I want to, I want to get off these tracks and I want to go to the beach, right? You know? No, the train doesn't run without the tracks. The tracks are the limitation. We, we have to understand freedom within limits. We're free when our behavior is consistent with who we've been created to be. The, the scriptures teach us that, that we have this defect, this problem within us that comes because of, of indwelling sin that comes from our first father and mother and their alienation from God. It lives within us and it takes us away from where we're supposed to be. Joy comes when we say, this is what I was designed for. This is what I was created for. This is how I am supposed to live. And then we pursue our joy and our happiness within those boundaries. Look at what Jude says here. He speaks to those who are called. He speaks to those who have 
heard the gospel. Those who are hearing what's being said and they are believing it. Those who are called to believe. And if they are believing, if they've heard the word that says that, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified by God's free act of grace in giving us a savior, God declares us righteous. If we've believed that, then we are saved and we can understand that God has called us to himself. It's, he, he says here that he writes to those who are called beloved in God the Father. So if we are called, then we are beloved in God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Beloved. That we can know that God loves us. And then the scriptures say, if beloved, then we're kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. We are preserved. We are being maintained for him. I think that's an amazing foundation. The word kept shows up three times in the book of Jude. And, and two more, when, when it shows up, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give us a defense for our joy as we seek to find it in God for what he's called us for. Now, Jude's desire in this letter, he says, I wanted to write you like a Christmas card letter. I wanted to say that everything's just wonderful, and I wanted to talk about our salvation, and I wanted to, um, this is in verse 3, he says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write to you appealing to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's going to spend the next like 16 verses or 13 verses defending this idea that faith needs to be protected, that we have to fight for it, preserve it, and, and keep it, right? I imagine if Jude were just writing to me and he weren't writing about our faith, he was writing to me about life circumstances, he would say, I wanted to write to you about your clean office. But forces are conspiring to mess it up. That's, that's what he would say. I wanted to write to you about your clean garage, your clean car, right? But this is, this is the way this, this works, right? Like once we get something neat and arranged in the way that, that we want it, once it's intact, it needs to be defended, right? And I have not done a good job of, of defending my office, nor my car, nor my garage. When, when we believe, when we say, I believe that I'm called by God, I believe that I'm beloved, and I believe that God is going to keep me, we need to defend that truth in our lives. We need to protect that because forces that live internally within us, forces that exist outside of us, forces of evil, we call him the devil. He is real. He has a, a plan to make you miserable and to steal your joy. He wants to tell us lies and draw us away from the joy that we found. And the world wants to suck the life and the joy out of everything. These things conspire against our understanding of the faith, and they draw us away unless we fight for it. We need to defend it. We need to preserve it. We need to get it right and then protect it and learn more and more as we go. Now, I believe this is a source of a piece of the problem for Christians and something that steals their joy on a regular basis. Many times, I, I think it's true, I think this saying is true, that the perfect is the enemy of the good. Have you ever heard that? 
The perfect is the enemy of the good. That, 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 that trying to get somewhere, trying to reach a goal, trying to say, my office, like every piece of paper will be exactly where it needs to go, means that I can't take any joy or success in progress. What happens to Christians, I think, is we, we begin to turn outward into the world and we say, we are going to make this place perfect. We're going we're gonna to say what's right and the way people ought to behave, and we expect everyone around us to fall in line. We're going to go out to the polls, and we are going to vote for our guy, and the world is going to be transformed. Right? We're going we're gonna to pray for 40 days, and God is going to do this. Right? And we think that, that, that if, if we do right, then God will bring perfection to pass. But I think God is bringing perfection to the world in his way, according to his will, according to his plan, in his time, and not according to ours. We desire to fix the world, to fix others. We want to fix our lives and our circumstances. What I believe is that God wants us to walk in the good of his plan and to keep the plan to himself and for us to do the things that he calls us to do. He wants us to be in the world doing good and not trying to make perfect. Does that make sense? He's told us the things that he wants us to do. To accomplish In the book of Micah, God says, He's shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. He has given us a plan. His plan is that every single person would hear the gospel of Jesus. That every single person would hear that they can be free from their sins because Jesus took on flesh, came, took the punishment and penalty for sin, and that they can experience freedom from guilt and life eternal. The plan is his. The actions are ours. Does that make sense? We're, we're connected to his plan, and we're told we're to love and to share and to speak good into the world. We can't fix the whole thing. But fixing the world isn't the key to our joy. Fixing our circumstances isn't the key to our joy. Having everything running according to plan shouldn't be the key to our joy. Many of us struggle with these things deeply. But after describing all of the chaos in the world and in the church, right, Jude spends like 13 verses doing this, talking about all these wicked things that are being done and all these false teachers and all the problems in the church, right? He, he basically says, you, you can't fix this. You, you're not going to fix it. Be aware that it's there. Fight to defend the truth. Not like give up and be like, what can we do? He's like, no, walk in the truth. I'm going to get to that in just a second. Look at, what he, look at how he sums up those, those 13 verses. He says in Jude 17, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. There's no joy there. That's what he's saying. You're not going to find joy there looking out and saying, I got, we got to fix everything. That's a recipe for disappointment. Because the last days, all right, I don't want to get into this. I got to. The last days... <laughs> 
Peter says that the last days began when he was preaching. He says, in these last days, we've witnessed these things. In the, la- the end, folks are like, is it the end times? The end times started after Jesus was raised from the dead. We live in the end times, folks. That's, that's, that's the Bible. So if you're like, it's not the end times yet, but it could be the end times, you're not fighting with me. You're fighting with the... Yeah, take it up with Peter. You must remember that in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. This is a problem that we're not going to fix. But there are things that we can do to make sure that our joy and the joy of the church and the joy of those around us is not destroyed by the fact that we live in a sinful, fallen world. Okay, so there's no joy there. That's verses 17, 18, and 19, right? On the contrary, this is what Jude says to us. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He says, okay, look, you, you, you can't fix that. That's beyond you. That's the way it's going to be. The apostles said that. That that's always going to kind of be there. That's the, that's the stage that the mission of the church is lived out on. The, the Christian lives their life understanding that that is the stage, that those people will always be there. But he says, remember, you are beloved by God. But you, beloved, you're beloved by God. Think about this. Jesus took on flesh, yes, to glorify his Father. The Trinity is outraged by the fact that humanity will not live consistent with what they were created for. But Jesus comes into the world saying, yes, I will glorify us by living a life consistent with the way that you've called humans to live. I will live that life. I will satisfy our wrath by taking the guilt of humanity on myself, by living a a perfect life, and I will suffer the penalty to take their guilt. I will actively obey our will to cover their disobedience with good. Think about that. The Bible says that God loved us while we were still sinners. There's a medicine there that pushes away despair, folks. If you can remember in your darkest moments, if you can think when you have sinned and failed and you think, how could God love me? Just just hit the pause button for a second and, and, and ask, are you saying because you've committed this sin or you've failed in this way, you're wondering if God could love you? Like, you've lived the Christian life for all these years and you're still capable of this. Listen, before you lived any Christian life, before you did anything good, God loved you anyway. So all your good didn't change his prior opinion of you. Does that make sense? He loved you before. Your actions didn't make him love you. No, it's his love for you that changes your actions. And if the wiring's not hooked up right and you're reading the whole thing wrong, you know, like we just need to focus on this fact that you are beloved by God. Remember that you are loved. 
So, okay, there's one verb in this sentence and three participles. The participles are the ing verbs, right? They, they, or the, the ing actions, they, like, they, they connect to the main verb. There's probably a better way to describe participles. Go, go talk to somebody who understands grammar really well. Um, but but look, at what, look at what Jude says to us here. He says that we're to remember that we're beloved and then we're to be building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Build ourselves up in our most holy faith. This is one of the ways that we preserve our joy. On a whim, a couple of years ago, at the end of the year, I was like cashing out my, my line items here at church. And what I would do is I would do what I call book Armageddon, where if I've got like two or $300 left in my, my library line item, thank you for voting yes on the budget. I just like, I just buy any book that I think I'd want. I bought Marrow of Theology by the dead Puritan William Ames. Like, and I, I just got it because I thought, like, that's a cool-looking cover. Like this, and then I started reading it, and it was amazing. It's amazing. Ames's, Ames's theology is that everything about God ought to affect everything that we think and feel. And I'm like, this is simple. But then he starts getting into it. Like, and so he says, he says, God's goodness and all of his qualities, the, all the goodness that he radiates ought to cause us to have joy. The understanding that God's sovereign over everything ought not to fill us with dread. Now, he doesn't say this, but I do. He, he, it ought not, ought not to fill us with dread and make us think like God's sovereign over my life. That means if I let go, then he will make me live in a jungle somewhere and eat bugs as a missionary. Like, that's what's going to happen. No, instead, he says God's sovereignty ought to create a deep trust in us. God's graciousness toward us ought to dig down deep into the roots as we confess our own sins and failures to God, the way that his graciousness seeps through every flaw in our character ought to cause us to be loving and gracious to others. That every single thing about God ought to affect the way that we act. This is a crazy transforming thought for me. His book is fantastic. We're to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. The idea is as we move closer towards God and we say, who, who are you and what are you calling me to believe that those truths that we hear and that we absorb and discern from God ought to transform the way that we live. His humility. Think about it. Think, think about what we act out in the Christmas pageant, Right? The God of the universe chose to be born to take human form and to be placed in a manger. The humility is incredible. If anyone deserved to be treated like Prince William's baby, do I have that right? It's Jesus, right? I mean, that guy deserved photographs of himself. He deserved to be placed in uh, something, a, a, a crib made out of something soft. I was going to say solid gold, and then I'm like, ah, that's, I, I don't know. He deserved to be treated like royalty, and yet, you know, he, he, he entered into the world in incredible humility. He chose to become a Middle Eastern pe peasant. There were no cameras, no news media. It took like 30 years for the book to come out, right? You know, he embraced humility. What do we learn from that? that we too ought to be humble. Isn't that amazing? 
build yourself up in your most holy faith. Second, pray in the Holy Spirit. There's a, a declaration of dependence there, a renewing of our relationship and a maintaining of our connection with our Father. And then waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to life. The next big thing, the return of the Lord that, that on our schedule that we are anticipating that Jesus will return to take us to himself. Those are the, the three things that we ought to be doing, but they are all a sub-action connected to this main action here. Remember that Jude said that we're kept. But then he says here that we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're called to maintain our position of faith in all of the goodness that God has accomplished for us. We're to maintain our faith in all of the promises that God has made for us. We're to keep ourselves close to him in terms of our dependence on him and to avoid anything else coming between us and him in terms of our sufficiency of our, our confidence, of our expectation of, of security. You know, as Americans, things like checkbooks get in the way, don't they? Like, do you feel good based on how much money is in your account? Like, you, you, you feel bad and anxious when the account is low. When a, when a statement comes and says, oh, here's how your retirement is performing, and it's up, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm good. You know, that creates distance from us and God. When, when we think, like, what are we depending on? Where is our security? One of the ways in which we keep ourselves in the love of God is that we say that nothing makes me good or right or clean in the sight of God but the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not my doing good that's the foundation of my righteousness. It's not my giving. It's not my sharing. It's not whether or not I've had my quiet time. It's not whether or not I've attained my career goals. It's not whether or not everyone around me is shiny, happy, perfect all the time. It's none of those things that, that declare whether or not I am righteous in the sight of God. It is, it is the blood of Jesus shed for me. And it is my faith and trust in that that brings those benefits and blessings to me. Our natural tendency is to drift away from this. This is why Jesus says this, John 15, 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. By the way, that's like a love that no human being had ever expressed before. The love of the Father for the Son, there's, there's no comparison to it. After Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, he says this, abide in my love. Live there. Remain there is what he says. Don't build your house anywhere else but there. That's where your spiritual house goes. Our natural tendency is to drift. And so we need to resist that drift. We need to recapture it. Recapture it in song. Recapture it in memories that you have of how God has delivered you. I've told you guys this before, that, that when we gave away our car, when we were going to go away to grad school, when I was going to study to be a pastor, we signed over our lease um, for, for the expensive car that we had, because when we signed the lease, we weren't going to grad school to become a pastor. We were like, you know, we're going to just live the life. And then all of a sudden everything changed. I signed over my car. We had no idea what we were going to do. And God made it so that somebody gave us this 
old Woody style station wagon, you know? It was like the greatest car ever. We drove it back and forth from South Carolina 24 times, I think. It's amazing. My mom gave me a little, little matchbox car of that car. So, and every time I see it, I think God has been good to me. He's been good to me. He's been good to me. And it, it reminds me of my joy. Because if I just focus on now, I could be like, I got 17 problems, right? You know? And I forget the goodness that God has shown to me. And so we need to fight for that joy. Okay, that's the first of three ways that we can embrace joy as, as consistent with God's work is, is that we, we keep, we abide, we, we press in. Sing with joy and sing for joy, Christian. Read and listen to the scripture to build your joy, but also for your joy as you remember and are confronted with the good things that God has accomplished for you in Jesus. Pray to connect to the Father and the Lord Jesus, not to be seen doing good and to receive bonus points. You know, I walked into, um, okay, I love the roast beef sandwich at Jersey Mike's. It is like the greatest thing on earth. Occasionally they'll say to me, like, do you want bacon on it? I'm like, well, if you take it off, you ruin it. Like, why would I not want bacon? You know, what's up with that? I get these texts from Jersey Mike's and they're like, come in today for double points. Right? I have to go in there and I have to spend money to earn points. I went into Chipotle a couple months ago and, uh, and, and the manager gave me my meal for free. And I was like, what's up with that? And he's like, you used to be in here all the time. Like, all the time. Like, where have you been? I was like, really? Like, do you, are you, do you say this like to every like, 50th random customer, like just as a strategy? But I used to go over all the time. I'm like, I can't believe you, like, you saw me and you missed me. Like, oh, I got to come back. <laughs> Listen, so often we think like bad is happening in my life because I've not been good. You, we, we don't understand how far short we fall from the goodness that God requires if we think that we're being mistreated because we've not been good enough. You know what I mean? We can never be good enough to earn good treatment from God. God loves us prior to any good, and he loves us in spite of our bad, and he gives us the good that comes from Christ to justify us. And so rehearse, remember, fight to remain there for joy. The second way to embrace joy is this. Embrace a mission of mercy and compassion toward others. This is where Immanuel Kant sneaks in, right? He says, do the right thing because it's the right thing and not for your joy. I say this, do the right thing because it leads to joy. God calls us to do it, and he understands that when we do what is good, it leads to joy and compassion. In humility, Jesus entered the world as a peasant to save both peasants and the rich. We're called to imitate his humility, to view others as those in need and to see them as those who need to be loved and shown mercy. Look at what Jude says here as he moves on towards the end of the letter. He says this, have mercy on those who doubt. I thought as Christians we were supposed to be like, oh, are you having doubts about your faith? Get out. You know, like just believe it. That's how I grew up. I was like, you know, how do you fit all those animals on the ark anyway? And it was like, you should not ask such questions. You know? 
people who waver or who have questions about the truth, many times they're just like, give me some answers because I delight in what I know about God, but I need a foundation that I can stand on. I need someone to answer these questions. I need to know that I'm not alone in my struggles. And so Jude says here, show mercy, listen, share, love. Don't throw people away. You know what? Some of the most rewarding work in the world, I believe, is to share consistently over and over with somebody and have to somebody say, you've helped me get back to where I thought I needed to be. You know, and I know it's not me. I know it's not me. I know it's just, I'm, I'm just, I'm showing them the book. I'm saying the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says, does, says this. The Spirit's the one who's doing the work. But I could be like, you're beneath me, doubter, right? Why don't you believe? That's not what we're called to do. It says show mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, the first part, Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. There are those who don't know enough about Christianity to doubt. They just are wandering through life and they're not committed to anything and they're just... They're just experiencing life circumstances. They don't know anything about normal or stable or being loved. They just, they see things that they've absorbed on television. They don't understand the truth of God. They don't know the scriptures. The Bible says, snatch those people in love and mercy. They're wandering. Say, hey, come on over here and find what I've found. Imitate, understand, believe what I believe in and find joy. And to these, we should pray. For them. We should plead with them, argue with them, share, intervene in their lives and ask them to believe because they are able to be snatched out of the fire. This is a loving thing to share the gospel. What are they going to say? I don't like you. All right. You know? I still love my kids. They've told me they don't like me at times. You know? <laughs> Verse 23, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You know, there are those out there who we look at and we say, that person is a sinner. That person is defiled. That person is far from God. That person will never get saved. That person did wrong. Everybody ought to despise them. The world loves to do that, by the way. They're like, this person's great. And then they do something bad, and they're like, this person's the wickedest, most horrible person ever. And they never, ever, 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 ever deserve anything else good to happen to them ever, ever, ever again. The Bible says to those kinds of folks, we ought to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Show mercy. I believe what Jude is saying here is keep ourselves distant from people's sinful ways and behavior, but reject the person I mean, reject the, the behavior. Sorry, that was my inner fundamentalism coming out. Reject the behavior, not the person. The garment stained by the flesh is stained by their nature. But the garment can be stripped off and thrown away as the person repents and comes to the Lord. We're supposed to see ourselves as ambassadors of the good news. This is hard and difficult work. But when we See God work, there is no joy like being used by God. There is no joy. The third way is this, as we close. Remember, joy is not a disembodied thing. It's a person. Joy is a person with whom we have a relationship. 
as Christians. We remember that joy is about relationship with, with God. We have been given so much, and we ought to remember that and fight for it. That's the first way. The second way is to live our lives in service of others. But the third way is this, to remember that we have a relationship with God, and one day we will stand in, our, in his presence with great joy. Jude concludes this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Joy is a person that we have a relationship with. We have been kept by the power of God for Jesus, and we are to keep ourselves. And that introduces this element of of risk into the equations where I think, like, what if I don't keep myself well enough? Look at how he concludes. It goes like this in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you, he is able to keep you me from stumbling and he will present me before the presence of God's glory with great joy. What keeps us focused on our true home, on our joy in God? If we remember the story and we see the hand of God in our story, it will remind us of the love of God. This is not, it's, it's, it's moving beyond understanding the truth of Christianity and then defending that. It's, it moves beyond our mission of doing and it goes to what has God done in my life to preserve me and protect me and bring me along the way. I remember my story. I grew up in the church and I felt clearly the call of God on my life And then I said no, and I ran from it. I ran far from where I was, and I forgot how to get home. Lost in a trap of my own mixed-up thinking, and God made it so that I sat at a picnic table and I talked to the guy I didn't want to know. Pastor Fox was like... Can't believe I gotta eat dinner with this guy. Like my brother's away at college, you know. I he didn't have to be here. Why do I have to be here? You know. I can remember saying things and glancing over at my mom and dad, and they were like cringing. Kids, don't do this to your parents. Be behave yourselves. Um, I I was just saying stuff that I knew was gonna make them uncomfortable. And you know what? He did not reject me. He didn't. He showed me mercy and kindness and love. I can remember inside thinking about how I wanted something. I wanted to find joy, but I couldn't embrace it because I didn't know how to believe in it. And I can remember him saying that my questions were important and saying that he believed God had answers to those questions. He took me seriously. He showed me mercy And it was at that point that I began to look back in my life and I saw that there was a consistent group of people who were faithful. When I was away at college, calling me, checking in on me, people meeting up with me, Christians who I didn't even know, inviting me to Bible study and stuff. And then I look back and I think, like, this is not some great conspiracy by all these people to keep me in the faith. This is my father sending witnesses to me over and over to draw me back to him. 
to joy. Because joy is not a thing. Happiness isn't a thing. You know, all these people who paint their houses and make them perfect on Instagram, and you're like, I wish I could live there. Like, that gets messed up. Probably right after the picture's taken. They take the set down, you know. Joy's not a, a thing to be experienced in our circumstances. It's a person who shapes our circumstances. When we look back and we see a long line of faithful witnesses pressing home the claims of Christ, we realize that we can put our whole faith in him. And I can remember thinking, you protected me. You brought me to this place. We remember how kind he is. We consider our present and our past sins, and we symbolically place them on Christ, and we watch them evaporate when they meet his righteousness. He is able to keep us from stumbling. He is able to present us blamely before the presence of God's glory with great joy, and he will. Let's, as a church, commit personally and corporately to be those who are merciful to others, to those who fight for the truth of the faith, but those who remember that joy is experienced in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and let's urge and plead with others that they would follow him too. Let's keep the fire of worship burning in our hearts for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your love and mercy in Jesus. We pray that you would preserve and protect us in the middle of a hectic holiday season, in the lull that follows after, in the high points and in the low points, when life feels good and bad. Help us to focus on you and to remember and to live in joy. We pray this, Lord. For your glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing song together.